Well, good morning again, church. And, and good morning to you online as well. There continues to be a contingent online, and we want to say good morning. And we hope you're also experiencing the presence of Jesus from where you are today. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to get to meet you today. Welcome. We just received from the visible word. We were nourished by the bread and by the cup as we remembered what was of first importance. Jesus Christ crucified for us, raised for us, ascended to heaven for us. And now we're going to move into receiving from his written word. I want to pray that he would teach us, that he would enliven our hearts and stir us as we just prayed for the kids. Would you pray with me? Father, would you by your spirit speak to us this morning? Would you give us ears to hear your voice through your word for our lives? Please fill each one of us with your spirit. Lord, we pray for those who are unable to be with us this morning because they are sick. We pray for healing for them. Pray for those who are waiting for results from medical tests. Lord, would you give them your peace and your confidence as they trust and wait on you. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who need to work this morning. Lord, in in their work, We ask that you would make yourself very known to them and present to them this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder, on this election week, what your week was like. How did you experience it? Chances are you received another text message or two or a hundred from some political campaign seeking to influence you to vote for their candidate or at least to not vote for the other one, right? Uh, You probably watched another commercial or two that assured you that the other person is the embodiment of everything that is evil and wrong in the world. You took another flyer out of your mailbox and filed it away in the recycle bin. And then you voted your conscience. Another election came and went. This morning, you may or may not be satisfied with the outcome of our collective will. As I began my day on Tuesday, I was struck by the words of Jesus in the prayer that he gave us. Our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. I prayed those words that morning and trusted that my always listening and always very present father heard me. Tuesday was an important day, but it was also a day like any other for followers of Jesus. I had prayed that same prayer the morning before, and the morning before that, and the morning before that. Election day was another day for us of praying for and seeking the kingdom of God in our midst. While our family lived in Canada, in Ottawa, Canada, we got to experience their election cycles in their national capital. It was an experience that changed my perspective and my approach, and it influenced how I felt this Tuesday morning. We were living in a place that we loved and that we wanted to see Jesus' prayer come to fruition in that place, yet we were totally powerless 
to vote in any of the elections that we saw all around us. We were guests, not citizens in that place. When the friendly mayor of Ottawa came to our door knocking, asking for our vote and impressing me with his knowledge of Wisconsin politics, I had to unfortunately tell him I'm not eligible to vote, although I would love to be able to vote. I, I'm not eligible. Living in a national capital where just about everything comes back to politics in a country that I was not eligible to vote in caused me to wrestle with the ways that power and influence work and what actually brings about change in a particular place. Being unable to vote in Canada did not make me apolitical, disinterested or, or detached from the process. Quite the opposite. I was fascinated with how Canadians engage in their process, their parliamentary system of government, their numerous political par parties, and their very short window of actual campaigning. It was fascinating to be front and center in a capital for it. But as I watched it, I became increasingly convinced that the places that we often think as power centers, the place that power and influence radiate from, are just shadows, small copies of the heavenly places where power truly resides and emanates from out into the world. Sure, I couldn't influence the outcome of the election there with my vote, but I could influence the outcome with my prayers. I could influence the outcome with my life lived in connection with Jesus. And more than that, I could live an influence through my life with my neighbors, the ones that Jesus talked about all the time as the Spirit of Christ dwelled in me. We live in a world that feels increasingly obsessed with politics and policies, a world in which it is believed that all will be fine if we all just voted correctly and the right human beings were put in the highest places of authority in order that their will would be done in all the places they're given authority. Here's the thing, though. The world already has a king, one with all authority and all power, and every other king, president, or ruler is still a subject. They are subject to the true and only sovereign one. And this sovereign one has plans and purposes that he will accomplish in this world with or without them. God has a way of causing the powerful to unwittingly and unknowingly accomplish his will. This morning, we're going to read about a crisis where the Apostle Paul's life hangs in the balance, where power and politics, councils, and even a conspiracy dominate yet where Jesus remains very much present and reigning. And help comes from the most unlikely places. The living God works that way. He confounds the powerful, and he confounds the determined will of many. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we would really love for you to have one. If you don't have one on your phone, we have Bibles in the corners of the room. You can feel free to get up and grab one. If you don't have a readable Bible at home, just take one of those with you. It's yours. We really want you to have one. As we move into Acts 23, it's important that we remember the context for this account so that we're able to catch the details 
that the human author of this book, Luke, captured for us. Two chapters earlier, Paul had been attacked and a Roman tribune, which is a commander, a military commander, rescued him, intervened. The tribune allowed Paul to speak to crowds of people who were against him to share his testimony of encountering Jesus on a Damascus road, the blindness that followed that encounter and the calling that he received. This testimony included that he used to be a persecutor of followers of Jesus. He used to oversee the execution of followers of Jesus. But Paul had experienced an improbable and radical change, an unlikely change that was brought about by a direct encounter with the living Jesus. And it wasn't until that encounter with the resurrected Jesus that he was transformed into be the apostle and the man that we know him to be now. If a poll had been taken in the weeks leading up to that encounter, no one would have guessed that this man of all people would become a zealous follower of Jesus, ready to put his life on the line for him, full of God's spirit, and whose allegiance to Jesus seemed to have no end, that he would just keep following him through anything. I want to begin reading, actually, at the very end of chapter 22. This is one of those chapters, 23, that the break is a bit awkward. If you start in 23, you miss what's happening here. So we're going to start in verse 30 of chapter 22. It says, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he, the tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. This is a really important sentence because in it, Luke is giving us a hint about what he is trying to accomplish in what follows. He wants this to be very clear to us, the same truth that was clear to the people who were there originally. Had Paul done anything deserving of death? Why is he actually on trial? What is actually going on here? That is what Luke is drawing our attention to, and that is what God is using, even the Romans, to bring about in this passage. Let's continue on. So this council is gathered. This is the Sanhedrin, and it says that the high priest was there, just before we read. The high priest would have been the human with the highest authority. There was no other human being in this group that had more authority than him. 23 verse 1. And looking intently at the council... Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Just stop for one minute. This is Paul's defense. My words and my actions have been lived in obedience to God. Everything that I have done has been in obedience to Him. My conscience is clear. I have lived faithfully to the heavenly vision that I received. Verse 2, And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The things are heating up fast. The high priest, remember, the one with the most power and authority, 
is incensed by what Paul says. He cannot handle it. So he orders him to be struck, which is unjust. With that action, he breaks the law. And Paul responds pretty boldly, you whitewashed wall. That's a unique saying. And Jesus actually said something very similar. He said, you whitewashed tombs. This is in Matthew 23, 27. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. The idea here is that of appearing versus being. A whitewashed wall would appear clean and strong and stable, but on the inside of that whitewashed wall was rot and decay. It was not stable and it was not strong. That's what he's saying in response. This is a good reminder for each one of us. Our call to holiness, our call to Christ-likeness is a call to be rather than to just appear. His transforming work in our hearts moves from the inside of us outward into our lives and the way we live. What people experience of us is meant to be a reflection of what is deep within our hearts and in our souls, not just how we want to appear to them like a whitewashed wall. Here's the thing. I already said it during communion. None of us has arrived. All of us are in process. And because our transformation is ongoing, we're going to have moments of disobedience, of dustiness, when that Adamic residue is just on us and we hurt each other. That's one of the reasons it's so crucial for us to remind each other and to be reminded of the gospel of grace continually. Because it's only from a place of safety, of remembering and understanding the gospel of grace, that I can truly look at the ways that I am still a whitewashed wall. As painful as facing our remaining brokenness can be, it's an important part of the renovation of our hearts. Because once we see where the rot is, we can then, in cooperation with God, deal with it, repent of it, and learn the ways of Jesus in that area of our life. Things for Paul and this council are about to get even more intense. Let's read in verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect, with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead, that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn into pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So intense. We see here what amounts to a sad example of political parties turning on each other. Notice that once the Pharisees learn that Paul is one of them, Paul's a Pharisee too, they quickly have a change of heart 
and the blinding encounter that he had experienced. They say, what if an angel spoke to him? Maybe. Now that they know he's one of them, one of their party, they see Paul as innocent or potentially innocent. We find nothing wrong with this man. It's a change of heart, very quick change of heart. They remember in that moment that their true enemies are not Paul, but the Sadducees, those other guys. So they start arguing and then actually physically fighting among each other about Paul, I guess. This is an example of what an older, wiser friend told me once. He said, Jeff, we label people so we can dismiss them. Human beings tend to label people so they can dismiss them. We have all sorts of creative ways, don't we, of deciding who's in and who's out, who's on the outside. And once someone's on the outside, their lives and their opinions are usually or automatically wrong or even worse, completely ignored by us. The outright dismissal of another human being is never an option for a follower of Jesus. We are called to a higher and deeper way of engagement with other people. I think it should be obvious to everyone that the tendency to label and then dismiss happens constantly in our politics. For some, demonizing the other side, whatever side it is, is virtuous and unfortunately quite lucrative. The brokenness like this in politics is expected. We kind of assume it's going to happen. But what about in the church? What about within? How are we tempted to dismiss one another here or in the larger church out there? We ought to be able to celebrate and mourn with other churches as they follow Jesus. But sadly, sometimes we're not able to and we do the opposite. Why is that? I think at least part of the problem is that we lose sight of who it is that we're dismissing when we do that. I mean, they're, just fill in the blank, they're part of a particular denomination. Or they believe a particular piece of theology that we don't believe. They're Pharisees. We're Sadducees. And I'm not, not talking theoretically right now, but actually very personally for me. A very important part of my growth in Jesus was a humbling that I received. Years ago, for several reasons, I found myself joining in a prayer time at a church that was not my own and that was part of a branch of the church that I had ignored and dismissed for years. It's not, it's not important what denomination it was, but what's important is that I had dismissed them and arrogantly and sinfully assumed that there really couldn't possibly be any genuine followers of Jesus there among them. As I joined them for prayer over time, I got to know them, and I could no longer dismiss them because they were part of that other denomination. Did we have differences in our theology? Yeah, we did. But were these my brothers and sisters? Yes, Yes, they very much were my brothers and sisters. And since they were brothers and sisters, we were able to pray together and love each other. And I could no longer dismiss them or write them off. I could learn from them. I could worship Jesus with them. And I was called by him to love them. 
Church, unfortunately, it is too easy for us as human beings to label and dismiss and then divide. Here at Faith Church, we're a church of people from many backgrounds, aren't we? We come from a wide variety of denominations and church experiences, and many with no church experience, yet we're all together here. We have different ways of living out our faith in the world. We don't even vote for the same people. Yet, yet, we are united around the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. We belong to each other in him. And we need to continue to pray for that and work for that, that unity. We can't take it for granted. We need to be on guard against the tendency to divide that resides in our own hearts at times and submit that to Jesus. We need to depend upon him for humility and for forgiveness. There's an important reason that Jesus included in his prayer that he gave us, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. He must have assumed that just as we would continually need to come to God and receive forgiveness from him, that we'd also need to continually go to each other to receive forgiveness from one another. Our unity and our love for each other is a precious gift from God. And it's one in which we image God in his being, in the Trinity, to the world. In the end, all human division, whether it's inside the church or it's outside the church, ends up being an attempt to construct a stronghold around ourselves, a place that is free of threats and temptations. Inside of our stronghold, we are free of anxiety. We are free of fear because we think that what could harm us is out there. We can manage and control what is within our stronghold. But we all know, don't we, that it isn't really the things out there that actually end up harming us, even though that is what we get consumed with and that is what we are afraid of. But it is within our own hearts that darkness and brokenness comes out and harms us. The truth is we have no need to construct a flimsy human-made stronghold. We already have a stronghold in our living God. Listen to Psalm 18.2. I love this. It says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Our call is to continually run into him, our true hope and our true deliverance from evil. Let's read the next verse in this Acts passage. This is one of the key verses in this section, verse 11. 2311, it says, The following night the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Having been rescued from the insanity of the council and the uproar and the violence, Jesus appears to Paul again. It's at this point of crisis that clarity comes and comfort comes from God. 
God's grace arrives, as it always does, at just the right time, just when we need it. Remember that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised his disciples, his followers, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And that promise included Paul, this latecomer, and that promise includes us as we walk through normal life and as we walk through crisis. He promises that he will be with us. God would continue to work redemption. Even though Paul was in a situation where the people you would have least expected to be protecting him, the Romans, are the ones keeping him safe. What we find here is that Luke is pointing out to us Paul's going to do the very things that God has made him to do. The human opposition that he's experiencing is actually only serving to advance the calling that Paul received. The more they persecute him, the more the Romans seem to be protecting him, and the more people in high places Paul preaches the gospel to. He could have never preached the gospel in those places apart from this persecution, apart from this resistance. God is overcoming it and using it. Paul will end up going all the way to Rome and probably, potentially, even preaching to Caesar. He needed this very direct and personal strengthening from Jesus because things were about to get even darker. Look at verse, 11, verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. A secret meeting, a conspiracy, 40 men, more than 40 men, committed to murdering Paul so much so they weren't going to eat or drink until they had done so. They were unbelievably determined to end his life. It's very extreme and it's so dark. It's hard to imagine. Here's the thing though. We in this room may not have taken such a dark, evil oath towards anyone in our life, ever, towards any of our enemies. But I wonder if the same spirit of unrighteous anger or wishing harm to another might reside in some place in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard against even a hint of that satanic end rumbling around within us. Here's what I mean. We may not have it in any of us to scheme to harm an enemy in our life, someone who we don't agree with or someone who has been unkind to us, for example. But what if something or someone else harmed that person independent of anything that we did? What then? Would our heart be sad and grieve the harm that was done to that person? Or would we, in some recess of our heart, be glad that one of our enemies had received what was coming to them, what they deserved? Church, do not be duped by the evil one. Do not allow even a hint of that desire for harm of another person fester in your heart. Turn from it. Confess it to the Lord. 
Ask him to give you a heart that grieves for your enemies and blesses them as Jesus called us to. Ask Jesus to bring about healing and forgiveness for that person as they encounter him. I mean, if God can soften all of us and win all of us in here, then surely he can do that with whoever troubles us in the world. Let's keep reading to see the unlikely way that God protects Paul. Verse 16. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? We'll stop reading there for time's sake, but the story continues. Paul's nephew somehow hears of this conspiracy, this murderous plot, hearing about it, shares it, and eventually gets a hearing with the tribune. The tribune, again, a man of authority, a commander, believes it, believes this nephew, and goes to great lengths to protect Paul from this plot. He orders two centurions. So tribunes are here and centurions are here. He orders two centurions and nearly 500 professional military personnel to be with Paul and to move him to another city, to Caesarea, where he will be safe and where he can be before Felix, who was the governor of that region, the governor of Palestine by Rome. And he says over and over again and makes it very clear, this man has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. This man has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. That's what he says as he sends him along. I'd encourage you to read the rest of this chapter. It's fascinating. Luke actually captures the letter that was written by the tribune to the governor Felix, and it's in our scriptures. It's amazing. This man has done nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Who does that sound like? Who else was sentenced to death based on trumped-up charges by religious authority and power? Paul's Lord and our Lord, Jesus. Jesus stood before that same council, the Jewish Sanhedrin, just like Paul. The council was those who delivered Jesus over to be executed. Listen to what Pontius Pilate, who was a prior Roman governor of Judea, listen to what he said of Jesus in Luke's first book that he wrote. This is Luke chapter 23. After examining him, Jesus, before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. It's remarkably similar. The same human author captured it, and he's wanting us to see something very important. Paul is following in the footsteps of his Savior. And in Paul's own words, the book of Philippians, for example, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And that's what Paul is doing, suffering for his sake. While it may seem like Luke wants us to have our focus solely put on Paul and Paul's story and what God is doing in Paul, 
the main character of this account continues to be the triune God and how the sovereign Lord of all things accomplished his ends in a crisis situation through very unlikely people. In this story, Romans and a young man, Paul's nephew, are key fulcrums in the power dynamics and the conspiracy to murder Paul. At the same time, this account is a prime example of the sad limits and brokenness in human pride and independence of God, trying to run the world without God. In order for us to live as God's people, we must, we must remember that every day is a day that God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as in heaven because of God. Because of God. He is the reason that that will happen. Wrongs will be righted and good will flow, but that good only flows as we are dependent upon him, as we are connected to him, the one who is the prime actor, the one who is redeeming. As we follow this example, his example to love and care for people that he has placed all around us, even those that are very difficult and maybe even feel like enemies in our lives. He continues to work change and he continues to work salvation in all the ways that we might least expect, like the Apostle Paul becoming a believer or Romans protecting him or a nephew hearing a plot. So as you go into this week, remember that true power and true change radiates from God and from the heavens, from his unchanging character, his power and love and goodness flow into us and into this world. That is why we pray and we pray and we pray some more because this is all dependent upon him. Each day, as you encounter all the things that are not yet right in the world, remember, dialogue with your heavenly father and turn to him as your stronghold and your deliverer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your servant Paul, for how you used the, the strong and the powerful and the, those with great authority to accomplish your will even when they didn't want it. And we know, Lord, that you do the same thing in our lives today and in this world today. Would you give us trust to depend upon you? Confidence that you are at work that you are continuing to overcome evil with good, that your kingdom is coming and your will is being done more and more because you are at work and you are the only sovereign one. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.